Good morning. Thank you, Dave, for what you had to share and uh, for the songs. It's amazing how God orchestrates a service. That last verse that April led, what stood out to me was uh, the first verse that said, What a pleasing sight are brethren that agree. How blessed are those whose hearts unite. And today I'm going to be talking about unity, and that couldn't be uh, more true um, as we think about unity. Well, I'm happy to be here with you all today, and I think it's a good day any, any time that uh, we can meet together, and we're, we're blessed because of it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you are love, and you see all the suffering, injustice, and misery which reign in this world. Have pity, we implore you, on the work of your hands. Look mercifully on the poor, the oppressed, and those who are heavy laden with error, labor, and sorrow. Fill our hearts with deep compassion for those who suffer, and hasten the kingdom of your coming of justice and truth through Jesus our Lord. Amen. That prayer was from Eugene Berzier, and he lived from 1831 to 1889. I just thought it was interesting how uh, that prayer from over 100 years ago still applies to us today. And uh, it's just proof that, that God extends outside of our time. And I think that sometimes we forget that um, this church and how we're operating today um, may have been, you know, it's may, maybe been operating this way for 50 years, maybe 100, but it's been going on for 2,000 years. The church has been going on, and it extends beyond us. Worship extends beyond us. When I was younger, um, I didn't enjoy hymns as much as I do now, but I think when we get so stuck on uh, a different way or a different style of worship, we forget that singing was going on way before there was hymns. So just because we worship differently um, today and they worship differently then, it's all worshipful towards God. So today I'm going to be talking about unity. And unity is one of those things that is hard. Um, but I want to kind of go back. And I want to go back to Genesis and kind of see where this unity started. And so we're going to go back to Genesis starting in chapter 1, uh, when God was, was uh, creating the world. And um, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, down in verse 26. And we're going to kind of, and we're going to read till uh, verse 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and stock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We're going to stop right there. So there's several things that really stick out to me in these verses. First of all, we were created in God's image. Now, one of the things that I thought that stuck out to me that I didn't notice before is that it says, God said, let us make mankind in our image. So here we have 
God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who were living together in perfect unity from the start. And he wanted to have a relationship with man and live in unity with man. So we were created in God's image. It's an intrinsic calling to represent him as his image bearer. We are bearers of his image. And then he gives us two vocations. The first one was for kingship. It says to rule over and rule under submission of God. So that's built into our very DNA. And then the second thing was to multiply or to be fruitful. And this isn't just reproduction. This is God wants his image to be spread throughout the earth. We each play a role in that. So like I said, prior to God creating man, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were living and existed in, perfectly uni- in perfect unity. And this is proof that they are one, the three-in-one, triune God. And prior to the fall, man and God lived together in unity. So there was this perfect relationship that was going on there. And then the fall happened. And we used our power, this intrinsic power of kingship, to abuse our relationship with God. We also abuse our relationship with others and with the earth and the animals on the earth. And now we see as far as this multiplying of his image and this fruitfulness, that is broken. And in this world today, it's part of the reason why we have such broken uh, sexuality, such broken relationships between man and woman. It's part of the reason why we as a society are trying to normalize LGBTQ community, Um, and it's a brokenness that is about it, and it happened at the fall, and we're still dealing with it. We're still dealing with sin. Sin entails guilt. We're guilty before the Father. We are now alienated. We're now cut off from God. It, It entails corruption, and it distorts God's image. Suddenly, we're not imaging God the way that we should. So God kind of came up with a temporary solution, and this was through covenants. And throughout the Old Testament, God gave man covenants. And I find it amazing that each and every time, man broke those covenants. But God always held up his end of the covenant and of the promise. But then, the good news is that God gives us a new covenant that we're under now. So let's read from Hebrews, starting in chapter 8. Uh, verse 6 and go to verse 13. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. 
By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. That's what God did for us in sending Jesus. He sent his son to fulfill these covenants that man could never fulfill. And Jesus actually fulfilled both sides of the covenant because he was fully man and he was fully God. And that was the only way that he could fulfill both of those covenants. Through Christ, we are now back in that relationship with God. And we can now have a relationship with the three in one, this triune God. His Holy Spirit is now indwelling in us. And in Christ and by his example, we now have the privilege of learning how to do our vocations, these intrinsic vocations that was given. And these vocations is how we are different from the world. We can now represent his image as it deserves to be represented. We are also waiting for Jesus' return, which will allow us to perfectly fulfill his image. So there's a couple things uh, just to touch on here. One of them is sanctification, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not perfect people. The second one is justification, and that's the work of Jesus Christ. And there's three different types of sanctification that I want to talk about quickly. First one is positional sanctification. And this is the work of, by God um, in which sinners are made holy. We're set apart as the church. Positional sanctification sets us apart, us sinners apart, for a purpose. And that purpose is participation in the life of the church and the glory of God. So it kind of works a little bit like justification where God graciously declares sinners righteous because of their faith in Christ. And Jesus took this penalty for sin. And it was a just penalty. It's what we deserved. So we're set apart. But then the second thing that follows is this progressive sanctification. And it's the work of God in which Christians uh, gradually grow in holiness and put to death sin. And as progressive sanctification continues, believers are increasingly conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We can be more like the image of Jesus. And then uh, another thing to note is that Progressive sanctification, you know, this progress of, of sanctifying us, it always follows our position. And there's always a response to that position of being set apart. And then the third one is perfect sanctification. And it's the work um, of the Holy Spirit by which the sanctification of, of the Christian is made complete. Now, obviously, we know that this doesn't happen until Jesus returns or we go to heaven. Um, but the Christian is now completely liberated from the power of corruption and sin. And we are set apart to image God because of our position as holy. And because of this position, now our identity can survive our failures. Even though we have this identity of being set apart and sanctified and being an image of God, now we can, it can survive our failures because we are failures. We are, as humans, we are going to fail And God's will for the church is perfect sanctification. And this obviously rests on a future hope or promise of God when he will bring his work to completion. Philippians 1, 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So now we can submit ourselves to this progress that God has 
put us on, this progressive sanctification through Jesus Christ. And this friction that's, that takes place between us and the world shows God's character. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brother, that, brothers, that the world hates you. John 15.18-19 says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So when we stand up for truth, when we stand up for um, things that, when we stand up for unity, that's the opposite of what the world is. The, the world is so divisive. Salvation is a free gift, but there's going to be a cost to following Jesus. And I saw on the news how a Christian church was uh, martyred in Afghanistan. Was that was that salvation, was that uh, call that they had on their life, was it cheap? No. It costed them their life. We seek costly perfection because we have been saved by a loving God and we have the privilege of representing Him. And then finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about church unity. But the fulfillment of God's purpose for the church can only happen together in community. It's in the very nature of God that we are in community. He was in community with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with us. It's in his very nature. And each of us, as individuals, are God's image bearers. But when it comes to the church as a whole, each of us have just a part of that image. God is much bigger than ourselves. And so that can only happen through unity. When we are unified as a church, we can represent his image as it should be. Division is the opposite of unity, and when we're divided, we're not representing God's image well. It'd be like breaking a, a piece of glass. And that's why Satan tries so hard to divide us, because he doesn't want to see us unified. But unity is the church's calling. It is part of this thing um, of already but not yet. So it, we already have unity to an extent, and that is a gift from God, but it's not yet complete, and Christ is going to bring that completion to the church into perfect unity, and it's going to be restored finally to his image. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He restored his image. By following Jesus together in the midst of a following world, we're participating in the glory of God. The church, not just this church here, but the church as a whole, is to mirror Christ. Sanctification is a process, like I said, and none of us are perfect and we're going to fail. But the world and the culture that we live in is very polarized and divided. And as the church, we have a great opportunity to show the world what it looks like to be unified. And as you well know, over this past year, churches have been just as divided as the rest of the world. And I think God is kind of using this time to kind of shake us and to see who is truly committed, to see who is willing to have this costly following of him. And when you think about unity, the phrase that, that comes up in my mind is this phrase of one another. It's used roughly 100 times in the New Testament. 59 of these times are specific commands that teach us how to relate to each other and how not to relate to each other. 
Now, some of these overlap, but 47 of these give instructions to the church, and 60% of these instructions are from Paul. A third of these one another commands deal with love. A third of them deal with church unity. And about 15% of them stress an attitude of humility and submission to one another. So just some examples, and I'm not going to name all the examples. There's a ton of them. But be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently and patiently tolerate one another. I love that word, to tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another, and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. Tolerate one another in love. Give preference to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. That's one of the things that we're going to be doing today. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Obviously, there's that command to love one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be compassionate and kind to one another. Submit to one another. Teach one another. Comfort. Encourage. Exhort. Show hospitality. Pray. Confess your faults. Do not lie to one another. Stop passing judgment to one another. Don't grumble against each other or slander one another. And then Romans 12.5 and Ephesians 4.25 kind of wrap it all up where they say, we do all of this because in a real sense, we are members of one another. That's why we have to be like this towards one another. And in this past year, when there was the option of uh, doing services online and um, things like that, how do we obey and carry out all of these one another's if we aren't deeply committed to each other? If we never come in contact with each other and rub shoulders with one another, how do we obey these commands? How do we devote ourselves to one another if the option of leaving is right in front of us? And what does devotion mean if we choose to stay, even if we want to leave? Discipleship literally means to rub off on each other. How are we going to disciple each other if we're not rubbing off on one another? How do we rub off on those around us, not just those in the church, if we're never around each other? And I think that all of these one another commands are really, uh, it's beautiful because Today, we're going to be doing communion. That's something, uh, and we're going to be doing feet washing. And it, it ties in really good here. And as I said before, John 13, 14 says, If I, then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus, who was God, he sent his son, served his disciples by washing probably the dirtiest part of their physical body in those days. They walked around all the time on their feet and the road was disgusting. And Jesus washed that. 
So what does that look like for us today in our culture? Because honestly, some people are grossed out by feet, but they, our feet are nowhere near as gross as what they were. Um, so I don't know, what are some examples that maybe come to your mind? I think with me being in the medical field, I could come up with a few examples, <laughs> but we're not gonna get into those. Um, but how do we do that today? Feet washing now is more of a symbol of, of what God did for us and remembering to serve one another. But just think how you individually can serve those around you and serve those who are, you are in church with. And then we're also going to be taking communion. And there's something that's holy about communion, which causes us to reflect and examine ourselves. But more importantly, we're to do this in remembrance of what Christ did for us. He restored our broken relationship with God and allowed the Holy Spirit to then come and work in us. And sometimes I think that we forget that we needed saving too, and Christ died for us. And we get so uh, wrapped up with uh, other things that are less important that we forget that Christ died for us, and that's the biggest and best news. And that's what we need to point everyone to. Part of our response to this good news is to share that good news. And I think that we do a good job of looking within the church and trying to follow God's commands. This is a good thing. But I think what we need to realize is that part of this is also to share the gospel. And I think as we share the gospel, um, one of the questions that was raised when I, I just went to Rosedale and they talked a little bit about these things. And one of the guys there said that for years their church had the same families, um, and then the, those families had kids, and then those kids stayed in the church. Now, that being said, our kids need saving too, and that's very important for us to make sure that our kids are being nurtured and make sure that they're finding Jesus. But he said one of the things that the pastors uh, and the leadership team at that church did was every sermon pointed to Jesus. Every sermon pointed to the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that at the end of church they say, raise your hand if you want to be saved, because most of the time that can be kind of shallow to do that. And they said it took about five years of them consistently talking about the gospel. And finally, uh, you know, members in the church came, became so comfortable with sharing the gospel. They were sharing the gospel and the church started to grow. And, and I think about our church and I think, is it really that simple? is all we need to do to grow is share the gospel. And I think that the gospel is something um, that transcends, you know, from, from when Christ died. I mean, that message has just exploded since then. So I would encourage you guys and challenge you guys to share the gospel. And um, us as a leadership team, I hope that we will also share the gospel with you because part of the church you know, is for building up and for showing unity. But another part of it is to be a hospital for the sick. And the Bible is clear about that. So that's my challenge to you today is to share the gospel and to remember that unity is from God. And it's something that is to um, be worked on. It, and today's message is just as much a message for me as it is with anyone. Unity is not something that, that comes easy. Unity as a matter of fact, is only from Jesus Christ. And if we are following after him and keeping our eyes fixed on him, 
that's the only way that we're going to be able to do this. So in closing, there's a, a song, and then Daniel, you can come up to uh, do the sharing and communion time.